Today's scripture reading is Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8 and 24 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is one of those passages of Scripture that seems more relevant than ever. A few weeks ago, you know, most of us would have, if we're honest, laughed at any talk of, you know, the end of the world and, and prophets of doom walking around with their sandwich board signs yelling at people that the end is near. Our economy was booming. We were at essentially full employment. The stock market was reaching all-time highs. March Madness was, was just around the corner. Uh, flights were booked. Trips were planned. Life was going on just as it ever does. Right? We believed that, that, that the future was just going to be a perpetual extension of the present. Now, the challenge in those circumstances would be to hear the urgency of Jesus' message in Mark chapter 13. It's hard to hear that, that, that urgency when, quite honestly, things just don't seem that urgent. There will be time for that later. At least that's the lie that we allowed ourselves to be lulled into believing. And yet here we are, just a few weeks later, and we're ready to listen. 
We are in the midst of a global crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades, if not a century. And all that talk about, you know, the sun being darkened and the moon not giving off its lights and, and the stars falling from the sky. Well, that, that doesn't sound so ridiculous now, does it? And the man with the sandwich board sign? You know, maybe he was on to something. But I think that this moment helps us understand something that, that is woven and embedded in the entire Bible, especially the New Testament. And, and that something is this, that Christianity is a faith of crisis. Let me say that again. This moment allows us to understand something that is embedded in the whole Bible, but especially in the New Testament, that Christianity is a faith of crisis. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of, of a crisis of faith. You know, something happens or we're exposed to some new ideas or, or new worldview, and, and suddenly the foundations of our beliefs are shaken. You know, we say, how can I believe in, a, in an all-good and an all-powerful God in the face of so much, you know, evil and suffering in the world? Or, you know, how can I believe in a, in a creator God and a God who is intimately involved in his creation when, you know, it seems like science can explain everything? Or how can I believe in prayer when all the smartest people tell me that it's not even less than worthless, but it's even offensive to offer prayers? How can the church be the body of Christ when it's filled with so many people who seem so unlike Jesus in their words and their actions? These are all the types of things that can precipitate a crisis of faith. But Christianity is a faith of crisis, meaning this. Christianity has always been a faith that has flourished in the midst of the crises of life. In fact, it's always been a faith that has brought people to a moment of crisis meaning an existential moment of decision. We're confronted with that question. Do I believe this or not? Do I believe that Jesus is who he said he is, who scripture says he is, or not? Am I going to follow him or not? Am I going to surrender my life to him or not? Am I going to invite him into my heart or not? Christianity is a faith of crisis because it always brings us to a point where we are confronted with the questions of ultimate things, questions of life and death, questions of right and wrong, questions of justice and injustice, Jesus or not. If I were to put this in, in fancy theological language, I would say that Christianity has always had an eschatological bent to it. Eschatology is, is simply reflection upon the last things or, or the end times, as they're more popularly called. And along with eschatology, this bent towards looking at the last things, Christianity has always had an, an apocalyptic streak running through it too. Now, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think of, you know, the cataclysmic destruction of the world, largely because of a, a, a certain kind of reading of the book of Revelation, whose Greek title is, after all, Apocalypsis. But what the word apocalypse means is to reveal, to pull back the curtain so that we can have an insight and an understanding into things that we couldn't from a normal perspective, that we can see things as they really are. And so this chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 13, has been called by scholars the, the little apocalypse. But what's striking with that language, and we compare it to something like the book of Revelation, is actually how unlike it it is. There's no beasts, 
No dragons, no seals, no trumpets. Actually, very little cosmic imagery. It's frankly some very pragmatic advice and a realistic picture of what's going to happen at the various ends, the various end times to which it speaks. But it is an apocalypse because Jesus in it is giving insight into what is going to happen. And most crucially for us, how then we shall live. And so we're going to look at three ends, three, three ends we see in this passage. The beginning of the end, the end of the end, and the middle of the end. So beginning of the end, end of the end, middle of the end. But before I say anything else, I want to highlight what I think is probably the most crucial teaching for us to keep in mind that Jesus gives us in this passage. And it, and it comes from verse 32, where Jesus says this. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, so speaking about sort of when these various ends are, are, are coming. So concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus is saying, when you're thinking about the end, when you're thinking about the end times, the second coming, any sort of that stuff, don't try to predict when it is going to happen. It's a waste of time. Even Jesus is saying, I don't know. And so if he doesn't know, what makes you think that you can figure it out on your own? So never listen to anyone who tells you that they know when the end is coming uh, you know, over the centuries, lots of Christians and, and lots of sectarian movements would have saved themselves and the world a whole, a whole host of trouble if they had just listened to what Jesus had to say here. So put away the charts and the graphs, folks. All right, so first, let's look at the beginning of the end. And when I say that, it's obvious that one of the main things that Jesus is talking about in this passage is the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which happens in the year 70 AD. So about 35, 40 years after uh, Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, right after you know, the events that, that occur in Mark 13. And so this is when, when the temple itself was burned to the ground and it was almost completely and totally destroyed, except... Uh, for the Western Wall, the, the Wailing Wall, which still stands till this day. And so Jesus's words about the beginning of the end, uh, they're, they're precipitated by one of his disciples saying as he's leaving the temple, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, honestly, this is sort of a weird thing for this particular disciple to be saying since Jesus has just gone into the temple and uh, the first thing he did when he got there was to uh, drive out the, the money changers and the people selling animals. And then he gets into this series of escalating uh, arguments and disputations with the Herodians and the teachers of the law and the, and the Pharisees and the Jerusalem elite. So it's, it's, it's just odd, an odd thing to say. But the disciple in saying that the temple was, was spectacular, a marvel, he wasn't wrong. Herod's temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Here's how the Jewish historian Josephus described it. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. As from solar rays to approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. Some of the stones of the building were, were 67 or 68 feet in length, seven and a half to eight feet in height, and nine feet in breadth. And so the temple was, was stunning. It was made up of these huge foundation stones. Some of them were the size of, of boxcars. 
And it was covered in gold and bronze. And in Jesus' day, it, it was still a work in progress. The construction on the temple was still incomplete. The temple was, in a way, in our manner of saying, it was too big to fail, too glorious to fail. Who could imagine that within 35 years, such a magnificent building would be reduced to a smoldering pile of rubble? Who could imagine that? Well, Jesus could. He understood that if his people continued to pursue a path of religious nationalism that led them into a direct confrontation with the Romans, disaster was ahead. Not one stone would be left upon another. And so the disciples hear this. They hear Jesus' warning and they ask for a specific sign so they'll know when this is going to happen. And instead, Jesus says, well, you need to get prepared because actually lots of bad things are going to happen. There's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. But those are not the sign of the end. They're just the birth pains. And so while Jesus is talking about a very, you know, specific historical circumstance that has since come to pass, there is a lesson here for us in Jesus's words about these only being the birth pains. And I think an important lesson for all of us to take away from this at the beginning of the end is don't panic. Don't panic. When bad things happen, don't panic. When rumors start flying around, don't panic. When a pandemic comes to your neighborhood, don't panic. Now wash your hands, of course, practice social distancing, and wear a mask when you go out in public. But don't panic. Because what happens when people start to panic is then folks start getting hurt. Right? People start hoarding, and we start viewing our neighbors not as fellow image bearers of our creator God and people whom Christ has called us to love and lay our lives down for, but as an enemy, as a threat, as a potential source of infection. So let's listen to Jesus, and let's keep our wits about us, and let's not panic, but let's be clear, calm, collected, level-headed. We're going to get through this together. All right, so that's the beginning of the end, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But what about the end of the end? This gets us to verses 24 through 31, which deal much more with with what has been uh, called the end times, or in more classical theological language, the second coming of Christ, that that part in the creed where it says, you know, from thence, so from the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, he shall come to judge the living and the dead, or in, in, in the older language, the quick and the dead. So the second coming of Christ, it's one of those aspects of the Christian faith that has long fascinated uh, the faithful. Medieval churches in Europe are all decorated with scenes of the last judgment where where Christ separates the saved and the damned. And it's rather lurid in in sort of the the details, especially with the, the fate awaiting the wicked. Now, in modern times, whole, whole movements in Christianity have become obsessed with mapping out exactly the order of events surrounding Christ's returns. You know, is it, is it pre-tribulation or post-tribulation? Is it pre-millennial or is it post-millennial? Is there going to be some kind of rapture where all the faithful people just disappear in one moment? The Left Behind series, right? All of these speak to our perpetual fascination uh, with, with, with Christ's return. 
And this obsession with the end has sometimes driven otherwise well-meaning Christians into all sorts of weird charts and timetables and reading the Bible through the lens of current events and trying to map what's happening in the news into what happens in Scripture, in Daniel and Revelation particularly. Now, on, on the danger of this, uh, Chesterton has some wise words for us. He says, It is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head, and not unnaturally, his head bursts. The wise man is content to get his head inside of the heavens. So, all that to say, we don't need to try to figure out exactly everything happens and map out every single detail. That, that's trying to get the heavens inside of your head. All we need to do is listen to Jesus, and he will get our head inside the heavens. Now, the imagery and the language surrounding Christ's return here that we see in our passage in Mark, they belong to that genre of literature called the apocalyptic. So when I say apocalyptic, we can think of certain parts of the book of Daniel, and we can think of the book of Revelation. And so apocalyptic language is a way of imbuing world historical events with their cosmic and theological significance. To be a little bit glib, uh, they are meant to be taken seriously, but not literally. So, for example, in Daniel, when it talks about beasts, we know that this is his way of talking about all the great empires of the ancient world that have risen up to oppose and oppress God and God's people. And when Revelation is talking about Babylon, we know that it's talking about Rome. Again, apocalyptic literature is how you talk in coded, symbolic, and theologically charged language about things that are, are happening or will happen that will it, turn the entire world upside down. And they are rooted in the deeply Jewish belief about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord occurs throughout the prophets as a day when God would act decisively to punish the wicked nations and vindicate his people and establish his kingdom on earth. So the way you talk about that, the way you talk about those kind of events, the way you talk about the coming of God's kingdom is, is the way that Jesus does in our passage. When he says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So what this passage means, certainly, is that Christ will return. But it doesn't mean that he will be surfing on clouds when he does. And so what's the lesson here? Right? Uh, what can we take away from Jesus' teaching about his return, about, about the end of the end? If I were to put it as starkly and as simply as possible, it's this. God wins. In the midst of our time that is filled with, with news of calamity, fear, hatred, violence, scarcity, and the like, we Christians can be confident that God will win through Jesus Christ because he's already won. Death and sin, they did their absolute worst to Jesus, and the grave couldn't hold him. And we know that they're going to try to do their absolute worst to us, but when we are in him, when we trust in him, when we belong to him, then his victory is our victory. We get to share in his ultimate triumph. So no matter what happens, 
with this virus or this pandemic or with our economy, God will win. And so we can live in the midst of all this uncertainty with that blessed assurance. In the end, God wins. Which brings us to the last thing I want to look at this morning, and that is the middle of the end. Because we've seen the beginning of the end where Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which has already happened. And we see the end of the end where Jesus talked about his second coming, which we're still awaiting. But the middle of the end is what Jesus teaches us about how we're supposed to live in the various ends, between the ends, between the times. How do we live as his faithful followers in light of the end? And so it starts in verse 33. And I want you to listen and pay attention here. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Does anyone hear a theme there of Jesus saying how we should live? You know, what does Jesus say four times, four times about how we're supposed to live? Stay awake. Repeat after me if you're at home. Stay awake. Right? I think that as a church, maybe in recent years here in in the West, we've allowed ourselves to be lulled to sleep. Just kind of kept on doing the same old things in the same old way, getting the same results, right? Not a real sense of urgency. And so we have not yet been stirred from our slumber. But now all of a sudden, it's like someone threw a bucket of cold water on us and we're awake. We've been startled out of our sleep. And there's people who've been talking about this for long before this moment of crisis came to us. Now, Mike Nelson and I, we uh, have a podcast called Like Trees Walking. And uh, just this past week, we, we interviewed a guy named Todd Balsinger. And, and he works at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He's the vice president, chief of leadership formation, and, and a senior fellow of leadership at the Dupree Center for Leadership Formation at Fuller. And so Todd wrote this book called Canoeing the Mountains. And it was published in 2015, but it uses the Lewis and Clark expedition as a metaphor for, for, for the challenges facing the church and Christian leaders in the 21st century. And it's a wonderful metaphor because Lewis and Clark, uh, they had been sent on an economic mission. And their mission was this. They needed to find a, a water route that would connect the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. So the Mississippi somewhere connects with the Columbia River. That's going to get you to the Pacific Ocean. And whatever great power of the world at that day, if it was the Spaniards, if it was the French, if it was the Americans, if it was the English, whoever could find this water route was going to be the dominant power um, on the continent. And, and so Lewis and Clark are sent out, and everyone knew that this water route existed. In fact, there were maps drawing, sort of speculating where, where would the Mississippi and then the Missouri sort of connect up to the Columbia River. Everyone knew it was there. And so then, you know, one day, Lewis and Clark, they, they get to the border between Montana and Idaho, and they climb up uh, the Lemhi Pass over the Continental Divide, and they expect that they're going to look down and see a little stream that will connect them to the Columbia River. But when they reached the top of that pass and they looked out, they did not see a stream, a river, a creek, a crick, whatever you want to call it. You know what they saw? The Rocky Mountains. 
And those Rocky Mountains stretched for hundreds of miles on the horizon. There was no stream. There was no need for their canoes. So what had gotten them to that point, being, you know, excellent navigators of river, would not get them to where they needed to go. They had to wake up to that reality very, very fast. And so church, we are in such a moment right now. What got us to where we are will not get us to where we need to go. So we've got to learn to be the church and to be Christians and to live Christianly in ways that we haven't before. And the beautiful thing is, we are all learners right now. We all get to learn how to do this together. And so for us in this moment, we need to heed Jesus' words and wake up. Wake up to that fact. Now, what does it mean to be awake? Well, there's many things that we could say about that, but there's two lessons that I want us to take away about what it means to be awake this morning. And the first thing about being awake is it means that you're alert. You're aware of what's going on around you. Think about it. When you're sleeping, you're in a state of extremely limited consciousness. You you don't know what's going on around you. And so being awake is about being alert. We know what's happening. We're aware of how what's happening is affecting our lives, uh, the lives of our family, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, right? right? We're awake to their situation and their needs. One of the great challenges for us then as a church when we're separated is this lack of awareness about how people are doing and about how we can be there for each other. And so, you know, now as Christians, we need this kind of heightened state of awareness so that we can respond faithfully and urgently to the demands of this moment upon us. You know, and so needs are arising. We're just trying to meet them as they come up. I mean, this past week, we put out a call for a DVD player. I was overwhelmed with the response so that people at home um, in our church who are not connected to the internet, who do not have computers, how can they watch the service? How can they see the nightly devotionals? Well, we can do that with a DVD. DVD players came flooding in. Uh, I didn't even put this in the email. I put out on Facebook, hey, someone in our congregation could really use a laptop so they can engage in the community at a heightened level than they're able to just on their smartphone. And and, and so boom, right away, uh, you know, within hours, uh, someone said, I've got a laptop that I can donate. These are just small examples of people being alert and awake and responding to the needs that are in front of us. And so friends, be, be on alert. If your spidey sense starts going off about someone or something or some situation, you know, respond to it. Check in. And the second aspect of being awake is being prepared. Because notice that, that being awake for Jesus, it's not just about having your eyes open and not being in a state of sleep. It's about being prepared. Jesus says it's about being prepared for the return of the master. And so when he returns, the, 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 the people are prepared to go out and meet him. They are prepared for action. And so we need to be prepared too, which means we need to continue, of course, in this new era, the things that we did before that shape us in, into people with a Christ-like heart and character. So we continue worshiping and praying and serving and gathering in community in ways that we can. But it also means new practices, that we need to discover new practices and new ways so that, that in our own households, uh, so, so we can be the church and be Christians in new ways for our neighbors. And you know, there's always been a church, and I, I'm, I'm this emphasis, and I'm guilty of it more than anyone probably, is there's always been this emphasis on the church gathered, right? The most important thing, the most crucial thing is when the body of Christ gathers as, as one, right, in worship to, to receive God's good gifts for us. 
you know, to be nourished with his word and, and sacrament and prayer. We call these the ordinary means of grace. And, and these are how God nourishes us for the journey of discipleship. And there is power and strength in numbers and gathering together. But we can't emphasize the church gathered without also stressing the, the vital importance of the church scattered. The church is the church when we are sent out into the world to serve God in mission. And in fact, without that, we're not the church. If we're just getting together once a week, that's not being church. If we're not going out in mission in Jesus' name. So we are the church even when we are scattered. And even when we can't be together. And so we need to be prepared to be Christ's hands and feet in new ways in this pandemic age. So I leave you with these words. Be alert to what God is up to right now. And be prepared to act in his name. And don't panic. Because regardless of what happens. Regardless of what happens. In the end, God wins. You know, the disciples, they asked for a timetable. They said, Lord, give us a timetable. So to spell out when it's going to happen, he didn't give them a timetable. He gave them a mandate for faithful discipleship. A mandate which we share. I close with these words from N.T. Wright. The world is going to be plunged into convulsions, Jesus says. And his followers called like him to live at the place where the purposes of God and the pain of the world cross paths with each other will find themselves caught up in the convulsions. We're going to find ourselves at, at, at where God's purposes and the pain of the world cross. And we will be caught in those convulsions. And that's right where we are. But brothers and sisters, that is right where we are supposed to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, I pray that, that we, as your people, would be awake to what you are trying to tell us in this moment. And Lord, how we can be awake to your activity and your kingdom, even in, in the midst of fear and uncertainty. Lord, teach us to be your church scattered. Teach us to be your church in mission. And by your spirit's power, God, help us to be alert. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be ready to bear witness to you and to serve you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.